Welcome to Witches Being Witches. Spiritual besties chatting all things stars, skin, science, sex, and self-love. I'm Tara, Ayurvedic consultant, cosmic witch, and Vedic astrologer. And I'm Emily, qualified naturopath, holistic skin witch, and founder of natural skin and lifestyle brand, The Purist Collection. Witches Being Witches is for the woman who is ready to reclaim her power, dares to take up space, and expresses herself fully. A witch is a woman who embraces nature, its cycles, and knows that she is magic. Welcome, Welcome fellow witch. witch. We are so happy you are here. This episode is proudly brought to you by The Purist Collection, a luxury naturopath-formulated skin, body, and lifestyle brand, supporting you with herbal medicine, flower aroma, and crystal therapy, because what you put on your body is just as important as what you put in it. Available online at thepuristcollection.com. That's the with purist, P-U-R-I-S-T, collection.com. Okay, let's get into today's episode. Welcome to episode six, Desires and Sexual Sovereignty with Dr. Saida. Dr. Saida has a PhD in female sexuality in transpersonal psychology. She is one of the world's leading authorities in Tao tantric art for women. Her work is inspiring women to dare into their desires and reclaim their sexuality. I'm so excited to bring this episode and introduce you to Dr. Saida. Her work really allowed me to reframe desire. Yeah, I, I think Tahara and I have been wanting to do an episode on sex and, and sexuality and desire since we started because we think it's such an important topic for witches and for witchy women in general. But we really wanted to start things off and start off the conversation from a slightly different viewpoint and a really foundational viewpoint as well um, to kind of, yeah, kickstart future conversations because we think that as witches it is so important to really claim your desire and to dare to desire, which is something that we really talk about Mm. in this episode with Dr. Said. Yeah, and taking responsibilities for our desires and and what we want and tapping into that. Yeah, and reclaiming our bodies and our sexuality and our power and the power that can, yeah, really come from recognising that we are worthy and... And powerful beings. Absolutely. Yep. Yeah, so I also, we just want to mention that a trigger warning for this. Yeah, we do touch a little bit on abuse and sexual abuse in this episode it's not a large part of the episode but we wanted to give you guys a heads up so yeah enjoy fellow witch okay welcome dr seda it's so lovely to have you with us so special yeah and so looking forward to diving into this conversation with you we really want to start with what is your rising sign and what is your sun sign I, I love that when you sent those questions, I was like, oh, they're little, what are they doing with this information? Uh, <laughs> but the rising sign is Pisces, so um, basically service to humanity. And the sun sign, which for me in shamanic astrology is like the turn on that you have, mm-hmm. um, less so your personality, but your turn on. And that's Virgo. So it's like the sacred work, you know, the, the sacred prostitute in the old days and in the new days, the high priestess and the sacred work. So. Amazing, mm, beautiful, and that really healing, deep healing aspect as well. Beautiful. Mm-hmm. And do you know your human design? I think I'm a generator. Yeah, awesome. If I remember correctly. <laughs> I'm a really weird one too. They're like, oh, this is a really rare. Anyways, I'm meant to be a hermit at some point, and I think it's already started. <laughs> <laughs> so, you're in good company. <laughs> yes. um, so we would love to know how you came to be this um, really empowerment for women in their sexual sovereignty. Could you, you know, walk us through how you got to where you are today? Yeah. Tell us about your journey. Yes. Um, it starts very young. Um, it starts with a mother who wasn't meant to conceive. And then I was conceived, uh, if you can imagine, an empty cabin in the middle of French Canada in the middle of a very cold winter. Uh, they had to hike in with snowshoes and long fur coats. 
And because there's no furniture, they made love on a fur coat. And there was this very like spectacular orgasm according to both parents. <laughs> and they remember feeling me like come at that moment. And so I think that sexuality, orgasm, pleasure was like just immersed in my being, like with that moment. Skip to age five, I was already teaching young girls my own age about the clitoris. Um, I did get caught. I got in a lot of trouble. Um, <laughs> but I remember thinking in my head, like, it, it, you must not know about this spot, because if she did, she wouldn't be so angry with me. <laughs> so the logic of a young mind who really like loved pleasure and had no shame with her body. And then fast forward a few more years where our, we lived on a Canadian reservation, one of the more violent ones. And our house became a shelter for abused women. And so very young age, like say eight onwards, I was exposed to what the physical damage that was happening, but also speaking to these women. And then as a teenager, I had like a file folder on all my friends and was counseling them on relationship issues. So it kind of was always there. And then fast forward to age 20, I had my kind of very epic, if you can call it that, life-changing moment where I was told I had two weeks to live. And that was a result of a very violent rape. Um, and the surgeon who had done the emergency surgery on my body had woken me up with these, this news. And that news kind of was like, uh, well, either I die in two weeks or I choose to live. So obviously I chose to live. And that adventure of healing and reclamation of my body is where the work really began. And I was doing an investigation and there was very little really out there, but the, I kind of put together bits and pieces and very quickly women were like, I don't know what you're doing, but I want it. And so that started coming more and more and more. And then I, um, the very first time I taught, I actually had no idea what I was going to teach the very first like group class. And I sat down and I looked at everyone and then something just knew what to do. And I spoke from that place and it felt like it was much more ancient than me. And mm. it had a knowing and I had an embodiment, yes, from having healed myself. But at that point, I didn't have the training. Skip forward, I decided, well, if I'm going to do this work all over the world, I might as well get credentialed. So I ended up with a PhD in transpersonal psychology and specializing in psychosexuality. And it's been a big journey but the work just keeps growing, unfolding. It's like absolutely incredible. And now sexual sovereignty, I feel is crucial. Like with what's happening with our body sovereignty everywhere on the planet, the rise of gender-based violence, the rise of the sex trafficking, more than ever, we have to address this issue. So I feel like I've been primed through life to be an advocate for this. Can you tell us a little bit more about sexual sovereignty and what it actually is and what it means? Yes. So many years ago when I was teaching, um, I was literally teaching all over the world. So maybe like 16 different countries and just like 20 workshops a year. It was a lot. And yet the result, no matter what culture I was in, no matter what age group, no matter what was happening, there was this sort of central theme. And I remember one day sitting there and it popped into my head. This is sovereignty. These women are like recognizing their sovereignty. And then I went, it's sexual sovereignty because that was the portal we were using. We were using sexual practice. And then I said, wow, like, I don't know what that is. And that was a long time ago. And then I remember writing an article about it, maybe almost a decade ago now, and realizing maybe this is the new part of human evolution where we have to come to this place where we're sovereign, not only in our thoughts, but also sovereign in our body, meaning really abiding, really being in our body and claiming this personal space thoroughly and so thoroughly that we take responsibility for it and we advocate for it. And when it comes to women in our social conditioning, we've forgotten or even haven't been shown how to advocate for our bodies, even just simple ways like going to a medical exam, for example. Many women don't know how to advocate for themselves there. Um, but many other ways in relationships, in, in lovemaking, all of these things, we don't really know how to advocate for our body, especially sexually. And then I started to look at what was happening in government bodies around the world. And there were no charter of rights that I could find that stated very clearly that you had the right to your body. You, you have more property rights in the charter of rights than you do body rights. So I was a bit shocked to realize oh, this is an assumptive charter of rights, probably written and I'm not against men at all, but it was probably written by men because it's a different orientation when you're male. 
And so it didn't occur that you need to claim that because they don't have to do that uh, in a way, right? So I was like, wow, this is a big humanitarian cultural like dynamic where if we did accept body sovereignty, sexual sovereignty, there wouldn't be gender-based violence. We wouldn't tolerate it. There wouldn't be sex trafficking, especially of young children. Like if you want to be in the sex trade by will, that's a different thing, but being trafficked against your will, um, that's, that's a human rights violation. It's, it's huge. And it's a body rights violation. And yet it's, it's increasing more and more. So that's why I think this topic is really important because collectively we're not aware yet that we need to have that claim on our body space and our personal space. Yeah, oh, wow. such incredible, uh, impactful and powerful work mm. um, that this is really about reclaiming the body, like you say, as women. And mm. I really feel we have a lot of shame around that. Um, and I was wondering if you can speak to that, that, that lineage of shame that we have around our body and how that is really impacting us in claiming that sovereignty that we have. Yes. Well, um, the work of Brené Brown, I'm just going to mention her, is really good for anybody who's looking to kind of be a shame buster because she lays it out so clearly. But one of the points is that guilt is something that we can change because guilt is usually towards something we have done, like an action we've taken. Mm -hmm. But the reason shame is so horrible is that it's against our own person and that's not changeable because that's innately who we are is shameful. And so the way that shame can get transformed is to recognize it is conditioning for one and two, uh, we can unlearn it. So we learn it and then we can unlearn it. The reason shame is often used culturally in many cultures is as a moralistic, um, say, compass. And we think that we're doing people uh, a service by shaming them into good behavior uh, rather than actually building a greater conscience in people, like training the conscience and realizing everybody knows when they're making a bad decision. You feel it, but we don't really empower people in that knowing. And so we'd rather, we'd rather shame somebody. And then there's many types of shaming, but body shaming is massive with women, um, and, but also with men. I think a lot of, even children now are having a lot of body shame stuff. So why do we do body shaming? Um, it's a great way to control people. It's a great way to you you obsess with something that's uncontrollable. You're born with this body. How are you going to like, you don't do body swapping. It's like, okay, I'm going to go to the store and like select this and this and this, which is typically now what we're doing. We're swiping and clicking and, you know, we're, we're designing our own cars and like we're doing all this stuff. So we think we might have that privilege with the body. And to an extent, some surgeries allow for that, but it's still our body and it's not, it's going to and it's going to keep aging and it's going to keep giving us troubles. <laughs> it's going to do these things. So if we can learn to have a beautiful relationship with the body, our particular body and shift gears from what it looks like to how do I feel in this body and start to be pleasure-based oriented versus ideal-based oriented. Mm -hmm. And there's um, a liberation that happens. You become quite rebellious because a person who's in pleasure is hard to control they're going to think for themselves and they're, they're not going to be the good consumers because they don't need all that stuff in order to feel good. Mm -hmm. They already have a mechanism through their sensuality, through their body to feel good without anything. And it's free. So that I think is one of the big parts of keeping shame alive is it creates a great consumer um, environment and it's a great way to control people and have them obsess around something really uh, useless in comparison to the real problems that we're facing and should be looking at together as a community. Absolutely. Yeah, and I love that you really speak to that liberation, you know, breaking that that mold and those conditionings and those that programming. And, you know, I think what breaks that is having this conversation, mm -hmm. having this conversation around it. Like I grew up in a, um, a very religious cult-like environment and that was very much the element of that control and keeping that moralistic 
um, framework. And now, you know, transversing that, I see the power that this actually has um, and why, um, you know, yeah, there's, there's power and there's control in that. Um, and so why that is really, you know, people try to remove that. Um, so, yeah, I, I think it's powerful that we step into this conversation and, and bring light to it and, yeah, change, reframe it um, into something empowering. Yeah. I, um, I agree with you with the reframing. I think it's uh, crucial, which is, I think, more what I'm attempting to do with my work is mm -hmm. just present possibility and allow the sovereign person to choose for themselves. I think it's important to state that here. I don't have the answers. I don't have, like really the guidance you have your own guidance what I'm trying to do with my work is have you tune into that guidance and have you trust that guidance and then get co-creative with all these different sovereign people like how do we want to create this together uh is more the point of the work that I have the new world order and we're all going to love our bodies and we're all going to have pleasure that may not be the truth for some people so um yeah you talk a lot about um, pleasure and desire and we wanted to kind of talk to you a little bit more, I guess, and keeping in mind that shame background. What is desire and how do we explore our desires and kind of uncover them, especially when we're battling aspects of shame at the same time? Yes. So um, I wrote a second book, so I think you read the emergence book, but Desire is actually my second book. So um, in, in that book, I make an attempt, also in the TEDx talk I do, I, I make an attempt to reframe desire entirely. So yes, it's a motivational force. If you're thirsty, you desire to drink. If you're hungry, you desire to eat. There is a, a functional biological reason for you know, intense desires because it motivates us to go get water, go eat, you know, da, da, da. But I wanted to look at it beyond that because it has so much stigma and it supposedly desires the source of all human suffering according to many different teachings. And I didn't agree with that. I was like, if we didn't have desire, we wouldn't even move. We, we would do nothing. There would be nothing created. There would be nothing happening. So there's gotta be a greater purpose to desire. And then we're very innovative as human beings. Where does that innovation come from? So then I started to look at what if desire was an actual force of nature that we could trust like a compass and it was like the visceral voice of your own essence leading you forward so that the very thing that you ache for is meant to guide you into the next iteration of your life. So desires actually, when you can tune into the truth of them, the true desires, they're very powerful motivational forces, but not just from baseline biological purposes, but for like your own evolution as a being, as a soul, as a creature on this planet. So I started looking at desire more in that lens than something evil and sinful and bad and da da da. Mm -hmm. Because I'm like, if we look at it that way, what we're doing is essentially the same as what we're doing with shame. So now I have all these feelings and desires, but they're bad. So I have to shut down again. Why not harness this life force, this, thing that's emerging in me and, and do the work to understand it deeply so it doesn't control me and it doesn't get hijacked, let's say. Mm. And I'm actually working with the evolution of myself and with life and co-creating in a way that I bring forth all my genius and my gifts into the world. And every single person has this. It's not a privilege. It's a birthright. So that uh, then with desire, I'm really curious, like, let's lean in, let's go deeper, like what's underneath the thing you think you want, because what you want is really usually never what you want. There's something underneath the thing that we think we want. <laughs> yes, and I love um, that you mentioned this in your book, um, the aspect of hijacked desire. Um, can you elaborate more on those? Um, yes. Um, initially, I, I didn't even understand what I meant when I was using that. I was like, I know it's true somehow, but what do I actually mean by this? But when um, having to speak about it a lot and really having to develop this idea, 
what I realized is hijacked desire is the social mandates and the conditioning, both from uh, parental conditioning, familial, familial uh, community, and then societal and then global. So all these layers of conditioning. And by conditioning, I mean, these are sometimes conditioning is good, like being polite or driving on the side of the road that you're meant to drive on. And, you know, just there's certain types of things that help us function as a large group of people. But then when we're actually conditioning the essence of a person and stripping away their free ability to choose, let's say. So now they're acting according to what they should be doing rather than what they desire truly to be expressing. Mm -hmm. So what that looks like, a hijacked desire, let's use love because it's pretty common. A lot of people want to be in love. Uh, then they you know, want to get married. And you know, there's a whole like thing, right? So what happens with love is we have a genuine desire to know love and to deeply experience love and to open to love. And yet what happens is we have this almost laundry list of what love should look like. Mm -hmm. It should be six foot four and weigh this much and make this much money and drive this kind of car and like behave in this way and also be a God in like the bedroom and be <laughs> like just ongoing. Like the laundry list is like huge, right? So that's hijacked because the original intent is I want to be deeply met in love, but we don't know that. We just think I want love. But the truth is we want to be deeply met in love. That list may or may not be met, but if you're focused on it, you will bring that into your life and you'll kind of go, is this it? Is this love? It's, it's May, which was my first marriage was actually like that. He literally, I ticked off every single box mm -hmm. and forever lasted 30 days. So I married my hijacked desire. Mm -hmm. If someone wise at that moment had stopped me and said, Saida, what is it that you really want here? I'm like, well, I want to be deeply met in love. If we could have gotten to that place, I wouldn't have made all the choices that I made. Now, I did learn and grow and develop a lot through the trials and tribulations of that relationship. However, now I pay way more attention. If something emerges in me, a strong calling, let's say, an ache. I question it for a moment and go, whose desire is this? And mm -hmm. what is the essence of it versus that list? Mm -hmm. So say you want the desire to contribute is a huge desire. We all have it. In fact, when people stop contributing, they tend to die very quickly after that. We see that with elderly people when they stop feeling like they're useful. Mm -hmm. So contribution is essential to the human soul. And Yet, you know, how do we choose our contribution? Often it's like our parents tell us what we should learn and who we should become and where we should go or our friends or our peers, or we see some famous person on social media and we want to be just like them and we're not listening. What is the gift that wants to come forth in me? Mm -hmm. So that's also how contribution can get hijacked is then you funnel this need to contribute, but in a, a job that's just not suited to you. Mm. And you're working so hard, but you're feeling really dead, right? So uh, hijacked desires are everywhere and it's something to be aware of, but something not to be afraid of because it's just information. And once you have it, you can deepen into the true desire and then realign your purpose and your actions to that true desire. Yeah. Something I, I want to ask you about um, based on what you were just talking about I have been kind of on a big relationship journey in the past year, I would say, really. And something that I'm starting to really learn about is my needs and whether my needs are being met. How do needs and desires work together? Are they the same kind of thing or are they completely unique? And, yeah, how do we kind of, um, I guess, tick off the boxes of our needs while we're exploring our desires at the same time? Exactly. So think of needs not as needy. So we all have needs and it doesn't make us needy. So it's a different distinction. There are needy aspects and then there are actual needs. So let's look at need. Everybody needs to feel like safe. So you don't want to be in an environment where you're constantly being abused or there's like a lot. That's not good for the body. It's not good for the mind. It actually is, erodes your well-being very, very quickly, for example. So being in an abusive relationship and then you need to be safe, feel safe, you won't be getting that from that person. Mm -hmm. It is an important need. 
can we take a stand for that need? So I call those more the non-negotiables. Mm. What are your non-negotiables? Uh, for me, it's I cannot be with someone who drinks all the time. It, it's maybe a little casual drink here and there, fine, but not someone who's like every day a glass of wine or every day a beer. Or, it's just not for me. I don't judge it, but it's not for me. Um, it's a, and, and it's a non-negotiable. So if I meet someone, they're amazing, but they're like a heavy drinker. It's, it's just a, it's not a, it's not going to happen mm-hmm. or even smoking. I just can't tolerate that in my personal space, but I don't judge people who smoke. You can smoke. I'm just not going to engage with you intimately. Yeah. So these are non-negotiables and they're hard to take a stand for because it makes us disagreeable. Mm-hmm. And women are especially con- conditioned to be agreeable. Young women, especially, are not taught that they have the right to have non-negotiables. So as young women, we tend to be very impressionable and we kind of say yes to everything and we just take what's handed to us, which makes young women very attractive to especially people who are insecure or don't have a desire to be engaged with the sovereign person, but more a minion, let's say, (laughs) uh, to put it in in a funny way. So knowing our needs is really important. I need to sleep. Like that's a really big one. I'm much happier if I get a lot of sleep. <laughs> I can tolerate a few sleepless nights, but it, you know, at some point, say in the marriage that I, I just had, I'm no longer in that relationship, but just had, at some point I realized he's having insomnia. He's disturbing my sleep. Let's sleep apart. Doesn't mean anything about this relationship, but I just need my sleep. Mm-hmm. And that was a very difficult thing to negotiate relationally because it meant something that I didn't want to sleep with the person. It didn't mean anything other than I want to sleep. <laughs> Please let me sleep. So we finally got to a place where we cuddle like at the beginning of the sleep time. And then I kind of go and meet up with him in the morning. And that was a really nice experience. And I was getting my sleep and I was a much happier person. So understanding those baseline needs and taking a stand for them, what do you need to live your optimal life? Let's just say that that's what we're going to look at. And what of those are non-negotiable? That's the needs category. Desire is something else. It's a motivational force. You're either going to have the desire for, there's just six main songs that I call like sex. Great. Know that you have that desire. Procreation. You want to make a, a family? Okay. That's a big, huge desire. Love. Um, thriving. If you're uh, sick right now or you're facing a huge challenge, the thing that keeps you going is the desire to thrive, even if you can't locate that immediately in your consciousness. Rapture. For many, many people, knowing the divine, getting in contact with something that's greater than them, that's part of the mystery, is essential and crucial to living properly and then contribution so when we uh, look at desire in those songs Mm -hmm. and we start to understand them they're very dynamic you can have almost all of them active at once you could have just one that's really predominant and it moves through and it's evolutionary my need for sleep is not evolutionary it's consistent Mm -hmm. i always going to need sleep And I can sometimes not have it, but it's still an important need. My need for deep respect. If you don't respect me, Mm -hmm. bye-bye. That's not going to evolve. That's an established, like, foundational place that I stand on. Desire is evolutionary. You're not, if you look at your life, you didn't always desire the same things. It's because it's evolving with you. It's informing you. It's, It's kind of on your living event horizon is where desire is. And needs are like your foundation, the thing that stabilizes your reality. Does that make sense? Yeah, I yeah. love how you framed that, the mm. non-negotiable. It just actually feels even more empowering Absolutely agree. <laughs> than a need. Like, no, this is actually my non-negotiable. Yeah. Like, this is the, yeah. the baseline. And, like, the desires are, you know, a progression mm. on top. So I love, yes. I love that. Mm. Absolutely agree. I also would really love to ask you, uh, what what do we do when this desire disappears? Because I hear this a lot, yes. especially around sexual desire. Mm. And I feel there is a lot of not judgment around it, but like a benchmark of what we need to get to or where we need to be sexually. So do you have any... Um, 
yeah, any thoughts around what happens when that desire disappears and how do we lean into that? How do we, yeah, build that desire? Yeah, and sit with that evolution, like Mm. you were saying, when obviously our um, our desires are going to change and evolve, but if we are, I guess, in a long-term relationship with someone sexually, what do we do when that evolves and maybe we don't feel like we desire them sexually anymore but we love them (laughs) okay this is um a conundrum for like almost anyone who's in a dedicated Mm. relational space so let's just keep it contained within that particular box because there's a very wide range for this answer um so first of all uh the work of william reich has influenced me a little bit because I liked how he was willing to look at desire and the psyche at the same time, which is actually the foundation of Western civilization is these Grecian concepts of Eros and psyche. And there's a whole myth around Eros and psyche. And there's an important marriage that happens between those things within each individual. The problem, there's many problems with what's going on here. So one problem is we don't develop in our emotional capacity, um, usually beyond a very baseline emotional model because we don't have models of what does a fully expressed, embodied, emotionally content person look like. We see dramas and soap operas and, you know, our politicians are barely like above the age of 12 in their emotionalities. And like, there's, we, we just don't have a lot of models and it's actually crucial because it impacts desire and libido. So William Reich's model was that libido is free flowing energy in your whole body at all times. It's just aliveness. Consider it like every cell pulsing with life. That is kind of, if you want to relate it to libido, it's in a sense of like, oh, I'm so alive. Like I'm so lit up. Like life is, you know, having that feeling of aliveness, right? Then there's the psyche. And he said, wherever there's a blockage in the psyche is where the libido can't move. It can't flow, free flow. So if there's more and more blockages in your psyche, which means like the part of you that thinks and believes and feels that storyline of you in that way, And if there's more and more mental blocks, more and more conditions, which happens in long-term relationships is more and more conditions, right? Mm -hmm. Over time, you're like, I know this person and there's no more mystery and it's Mm -hmm. bullshit. There's a lot of mystery. You're not the person you were even five minutes ago. If I engage with you, like it's the first time I've ever met you every single day and also the last time I'm ever going to see you, trust me, I'm going to start seeing the mystery. But when I take you for granted, then I'm not seeing that mystery. I'm just seeing your personality. And yes, we have habitual ways of being. And then we kind of default to that. But then also in my own self, I get habituated to a pattern of behavior around you. It's boring as, as I think the Australians say, batshit. (laughs) Right? So we have this, this thing that we do and we're no longer alive. What happens to the libido? It starts to snore. It's like, oh, like, seriously and the second you actually liberate a part of your psyche where you give yourself permission like wow like maybe you are in a committed relationship but you see another individual and they're like that is so hot oh my god and you feel this feeling in your body and you're like oh thank you and you're thanking the inspiration but Mm. you're also thanking your body for feeling alive and then you go home and you like you look at your partner, like, I am feeling like really turned on right now. And you bring that inspiration back into the relating. Mm-hmm. That's a little bit the homework, the more adults or mature way of handling like arousal and what's happening in the external world. And instead of shutting it down, gosh, you, you've been dead for so long, you suddenly feel aroused and then you shut it down with shame. We're just like, what are we doing to ourselves? Right? Mm. So and then past you go past the the beginning hormones, let's say the hormonal stage of excitation. Now we enter the stage of are you willing to cultivate eros? Will you take that on? This is your responsibility, not your partners. They are responsible for it in themselves, but in yourself. Are you turned on? Are you doing the things that make you feel juicy and connected? 
or mm -hmm. have you kind of given up on those things? Or are you actually a really boring person now that you're in a relationship and you're boring yourself to death because that's essentially what it is. Yeah. And then when you start to like go towards your edges, which is um, I have a community online called the daring project, which is basically women all over the world. And the idea is what would happen if we dared more? Mm. Right. It could be little dares, like just dare to let something beautiful touch you a little more. Like it doesn't have to be traumatic yeah. and then dare to feel how that aliveness is juicy inside Ooh, and then maybe dare expressing that. Like, so there's layers and layers of, of how we can dare, but daring can rekindle <clears throat> some creativity, I think, in the Eros. And Eros, it does love novelty, but it doesn't have to be extreme. It doesn't have to be a new partner every day. Hmm. What could be novel today? What's something you could do that would just light you up that you maybe been so routine and so patterned? And also with this pandemic, like, come on, yeah. everyone's stuck in a box. And it's like, you, you, how does anything get interesting? Yeah, yeah I so love how you bring this back to responsibility yes. about, you know, you owning that. And I love how you yeah. speak to the daring nature because as uh, witchy women, yeah. that is exactly <laughs> what we, um, you know, encourage that, yes. you know, you know, dare to fully express yourself and living mm -hmm. on the edge. Mm. I love that. I love that energy. So it, it's such an empowering way to look at things that you're in control. And yes. like you said at the, you know, the beginning when we asked you this question about keeping within that box of sexual desire and sexual relation, but I think it does apply to so many other things as well, keeping Absolutely. that excitement and, yeah, libido in whatever sense that might be going. Yes, yes. And, and part of it is we, um, we're afraid of pleasure. Mm. It's a global, global fear pandemic of pleasure, honestly. And the way we see that, how do we see that? Look at the news. Yeah. How much pleasure-based news is there and how much fear-based news is there? Mm -hmm. How many people feel very relaxed watching a city get blown up and people dying? Mm -hmm. And how many people cringe just at the ah, ah, yeah. sound? Right? Yeah. And I was just enjoying the breeze on my skin, but I made that sound and now you're offended. Um, so that's how we have conditioned ourselves to be on hyper alert, that fear-based things are more valuable. And it's true for survival. We had to pay attention to the things that were scary or else we were going to die historically. Yeah. Right. But now it's a trickery you were not meant to be in consistent fear day in and day out. That is not how we're designed. And we're doing, it's all imagined fear for the most part. Yeah. It's imagined fear. So we have to a little bit have a reclamation of attention. Mm. If we want to change things, where is my attention? Am I paying attention to everything that doesn't work in my relationship? Mm. What is working? Yeah. What do I love? What is still fascinating? What would I love that isn't yet expressed in this relationship? Mm -hmm. Could I take a risk? Mm -hmm. Every time I took risks relationally, it paid off very well. And even in times it did end the relationship, but then I got to evolve and move on and, and become even more expressed in my life. And other times it deepened the relationship so profoundly. I'm like, wow, I've never been to these depths before with anybody. So daring is crucial. It's the only thing that got our ancestors to move forward, those who didn't dare, they died. Mm. Yeah. yeah. So we must actually rekindle this, the spirits. I'm really happy you're talking about that and encouraging that in your listeners, because I think it's a underdeveloped human attribute at this point. Yeah. Mm. Can I ask you with desire, how self-worth plays into that? Because I guess it's going to be hard to face the conditioning that holds us back from desiring if we don't believe we're worthy of ever having that desire. Right. There are no conditions to pleasure. I just want to say that. You don't have to be perfect. You don't have to have fixed anything about you. In fact, one of the premises, I teach kind of like a professional level of this work and so the, one of the foundational, there's 12 premises, is um, if we can consider that we're not broken, so there's nothing to fix because we waste so much energy, our life force energy, fixing ourselves 
that there's nothing left for pleasure. There's nothing left for adventure. There's nothing left for exploration because we're fixed, fixed, fixed. And when I'm better or when I'm this, then I'm allowed to. It's very conditional uh, living. You can have shit self-worth and still have epic pleasure. It, you do not have to resolve your self-worth issues. What I prefer to look at is I can have this even if I'm feeling shit, mm. right? I can have this even if I'm not perfect. I'm allowed to feel good in my body even if everything around me isn't the way I truly would love it to be. Mm. Right now, current reality sucks. And I'm still a like allowed to desire and go for the thing that my heart's calling me towards. And I'm allowed to experience it in, in whatever little fragrances it comes into my life. Mm. So self-worth, yes. I mean, the more that we give ourselves permission, mm. like we matter just simply because we exist, right? So yeah. if we matter simply because we exist, we're not broken, we're not going to fix you. And the other prom, uh, premise of sexual sovereignty is you are powerful. Mm. So if you're powerful and everybody else around you is powerful because sovereignty, we're either all sovereign or we're not. It's mm. not uh, a privilege. It's a birthright. So either everybody's sovereign mm. or nobody is. And, and if everybody is sovereign, then everybody is powerful or nobody is powerful. There isn't kind of that in between. And, and it's hard to look at that when we see so much victimization because there's all plenty of that on the planet. Mm -hmm. uh, but if we really want to empower individuals to become free on any level of living, we have to regard them as powerful because if we don't, when we regard them, we see them as victims. There's no way out of victimhood. Mm -hmm. There's no way out of it. So if I look at you and go, you're powerful, Emily, and I think that, I don't necessarily say it, but you're powerful, you've got this. And I'm holding that intent when we're interacting. Mm. And I give you the space to explore possibility. I don't force you to do it in any way. I'm just opening up a space. You will naturally start to feel what's true for you. Mm. And you may need a little encouragement to move toward it, but essentially you're powerful and you, you will get there. Um, I've seen this too many times in tens and tens of thousands of people that I've been able to been blessed to really touch the lives of. It's really simple with human beings. Mm. You know, if we regard each other as powerful, what kind of conversations are we going to have? Mm. You want sexiness in your relationship? Start looking at each other as powerful. Start mm. speaking to those desires that you feel like I couldn't ever say that I want that. Why not? What would happen? What's the worst thing that could happen? Okay, they could judge you. So what? So what someone thinks of you is not, not your business. It's their problem. It's not your problem. Your problem is what you think of you. So, and going back to self-esteem or self-worth, if you are able to sit in yourself as you are and still move forward towards the things that you would love in your life, and you start to not betray yourself, meaning if you really want to move forward towards something, you take that one tiny little step, you've now strengthened that self-worth. It's up to us to have integrity with the things that are calling us and the actions we take towards those things. And when we don't, we betray ourselves and we lose a lot of energy. Mm, yeah, so, and I love how you put this in your book um, about our North Star. And about mm -hmm. coming back to that and what is that North Star and how can we, yeah, move towards that. Mm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's, that's to me the path of sovereignty, right? How, how can we assist each other to mm. really find that North Star and then support each other in it? If we want real diversity, not imposed diversity, but real diversity, allow people to be sovereign allow everyone to have a different way of speaking, of thinking, of expressing and enjoy it because that's genuine diversity. Your partner is going to be very different than you. They're going to have different desires and needs. Can you find that sexy? Mm. Even if it's not something you want to do, can you like, wow, can you feel the, the aliveness in your partner's body when they're expressing this thing that you may not be interested in, but they, it turns them on. You're like, wow, I love that turn on. Mm. Yeah. How do we get you to have that thing and still keeping the integrity of what we're creating together? 
Mm. Yeah, that's an amazing answer. Yeah, I love that. And I was wondering if in your book you go through our erotic development and I found this fascinating, the different stages that we, we go through in this exploration. And in particular, when you're talking about one of the, I think it's the third level of the erotic exploration, can you speak to how we can get stuck in that exploration phase of our erotic development and yeah where how can we progress to the next stage and and why we get stuck there okay yes so the um danger of creating a a theory like this because it is my theory it was just based on observing a lot of people Mm -hmm. and um the theory has been accepted by a lot of professionals. They really like it, but it's still meant to be developed. Okay. So, so the danger in that is that we create it as a a hard factual frame. So let's just say that right now it's, it's a fluid idea. Let's enter the possibility of it. And I think a lot of it makes sense. We're born erotically innocent. That makes sense. Uh, At some point, hormones kick in erotic activation. That makes sense. Then there's a point where we explore, which is the third one, which is what you're referring to. That makes sense. At some point in that exploration phase, inevitably, you will get to a place where you will say, there's got to be more to sex than this. Mm -hmm. That's when you now on the threshold of the fourth stage of expansion, erotic expansion. I don't know that there's a particular amount of time for that exploration phase. For some people, it might be one year and they're already wanting to expand versus explore, which is different. Explorations, you're just trying things mm-hmm. and looking at things and there's not necessarily a lot of um, deepening in the information. You're just kind of hungry to try and explore and And it's really, really, really healthy to do that. It's very, very important. Some people, it might be a decade, two decades. It's really like the development stage is not like we can say like a child of three and then a child of 14. It's it's not quite like that, this theory. It's more based on what's organically true for each sovereign individual. Mm. However, however, um, because the exploration phase is also very much connected to a sex industry, Mm. there can be uh, almost a indoctrination of this is what sexuality is and looks like, and then a falling asleep to there could be other things. So meaning again, the hijacked desire of Eros, right? Again, Mm. Uh, group con- consent around what is erotic and what is sexy. If you travel, you're going to start to understand that that's really different culturally, like what's sexy and what's it. I mean, you start to go, Oh, okay. <laughs> what's sexy to a French person is very different to like, I don't know, uh, someone from the Scandinavian country. It's, it's all very different. Mm. So, um, I think for me, it's giving ourselves permission to explore and without shame, just like, what is it that I like? What is it I don't like? And at some point, if you notice that you're kind of, I think I'm done. Like if this is what sex is, I kind of figured it out and it's not really that exciting anymore. You are now on that threshold of that next evolutionary phase. And as I said, the timeline is unique to every individual. And I try with this model not to shame anybody. It's just what I observed. Maybe some people never get to the stage four and five. So the goal is not necessary to get to the next stage. That's not the goal. The goal is to recognize where you are Mm. and to be friendly with where you are and then to realize there could be more. Mm. That's all. And I do love this framework because I did really um, identify with it because in that um, exploration phase, you talk about, um, you know, you can potentially get stuck in that, um, you know, pornography. There's, you know, 
um, a lot of issues now with a lot of people being addicted to that and especially in the climate where we're at at the moment mm. um, and the, the dangers with that and what that is doing to our psyche. But then there's also the aversion that you talk about. And I feel, especially in a religious context, that aversion is really um, quite dangerous as well because that is really suppressing our desires and um, I guess that's the polarity of being um, addicted to um, pornography or something like that. But then, um, yeah, that erotic expansion that you talk about, understanding that uh, sex is you know, has the ability to be so much more and so much deeper. And this is really touching on for me, like that spiritual aspect of it, because I really do feel that sex is very spiritual. Um, so I was wondering if you could talk about that sex and sexuality um, as being that really spiritual um, connection. Yes. So I want to kind of, spiritual is a very, um, it's a word like, well, what do we actually mean by that? Mm -hmm. So let's kind of frame that for a moment. Um, and I want to frame it through a little story of me meeting, um, I think it was a Catholic priest. He was teaching like Christian studies at the university and I met him on a ferry ride. He sat next to me. I'm like, oh dear, <laughs> conversation, you know? And, um, and so in, in, I said, okay, I just want to understand something. Is God omnipresent? Absolutely. So God is absolutely everywhere. Yes. In all time and space. Yes. Fully confirmed. God is everywhere in all time and space. So that means it's pre he's present or it is present during sex, silence, and pleasure, silence, and orgasm, right? Silence. <laughs> well, if he's omnipresent, is he not there at that time? Is not the divine consciousness yeah. present in all things at all time, including horrible things? Mm -hmm. So for me, spiritual is the, um, our connection with the mystery. And it is very mysterious, this little rock flying through space and all these little yeah. life forms dancing around on this rock. It's very yeah. mysterious. We, nobody understands it. So that connection to the mystery, that in, inexplainable place, whatever it means to each individual, it's actually essential because otherwise we, we're very small and we can get overwhelmed by the smallness of our, our own little reality. So something spiritual kind of expands us and gives us that potentiality. It connects to something greater. It can be very inspiring. And those who have some form of faith tend to be healthier psychologically and emotionally than those who don't. It's just like a lot of the studies that have looked at the role of having some sort of faith, even if your faith is in trees. I don't, it doesn't matter what your faith is in, but having some kind of connection outside of your own personal bubble. Mm -hmm. Now we're going to associate that with sexuality. So as with my little story, when we can move outside of just the physical, uh, sensorial, like somatic experience of sex, and then open our heart space. So now we have a little bit of an emotional experience of sex. So maybe there's delight or love or laughter or, you know, these different emotions that come in. And then we have um, the potentiality to notice, oh, I'm part of something. I'm part of something bigger. I'm part of something else. And that's um, in the brain, a transcendent center. There's actually a place in your brain that lights up, that makes you feel connected to all time and space, that makes you feel and see things in technicolor. So there's a center that's always been there in human beings. So something is connecting us to this transcendent place, this bigger place. And so when we are being sexual, and usually when we slow down a little bit, it's usually easier to sense. So that relaxed arousal state has been shown to activate that center. Now, even if you're not a believer of anything, the fact that you can expand your awareness into something greater than just your small self in that moment of pleasure for me is an act of spiritual sex. But what that means is it's conscious. It's like you're aware and you're not just insular in yourself. You're suddenly in love with all of life, for example. 
Mm. Yeah, one of those really good orgasms. She's like, oh, I love everything. <laughs> Everything's beautiful. You know, <laughs> you're in that place. Like, imagine if people had better and better orgasms, and now you're connected to life. You're connected to each other. It's 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 a different. You make choices differently because if you and I are connected, don't I want you to feel your best self, no matter what's going on? Yeah. Right. I totally yeah. want you to feel your best self. I'm going to be involved in that. So spiritual sex for me is conscious sex. It's, it's yes. the ability to, so it doesn't look like white robes and candles and incense. <laughs> mm -hmm. It could look like being tied up and spanked. It could still be spiritual. Why? Mm -hmm. Because it's the amount of consciousness we infuse in our experience yeah. that has, that creates that greater connection to all things versus you could have all the, the, the quote unquote tantric looking things and it completely be unconscious and abusive. Yeah. So yeah. it's the, I think I mentioned earlier, the reclamation of our attention. Where are we putting our attention? How are we using our attention? Mm -hmm. That's the consciousness. How are we using that? Now I'm with you. I'm going to give you all my attention and whatever we're doing, whether it's a dance or something kinky, it becomes quote unquote spiritual or connected. Yeah. Right. So that's kind of how I try to language it now, because yes, of course, there are many spiritual traditions and you can put your sexual practice in through those lenses, like a Taoist practice, for example, or, or the traditional, um, the actual real traditional Tantra lineage is not the Neo-Tantra stuff. Yes. I think even just the, the, the emergence of, the movement of conscious sexuality is attempting to do that. I don't know that it's succeeding, but it is attempting to do that. Um, but basically at the end of the day, it's uh, how much pleasure can we have when we're relating to the mystery of life? That's what spiritual sex is for me. I love how you made that really tangible, really tangible. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And um, yeah, such a, yeah, tangible way to look at it. Mm. Absolutely. Right. Yeah, I love that. Um, so I just want to finish on we, we, what we like to ask is at the end is um, what is health is a new wealth? Um, what does that to you? Hmm. Yes, I love that. I mean, I, yeah, long, long time ago, I was a practitioner of like body work and all of that. And I used to always say like health is your wealth. If you don't have health, you, you have nothing. So it's always been part of my life. So when I saw that you were going to ask me that, I'm like, oh, I love that because it's always <laughs> been such a big part of my life. But if you're not well, everything kind of becomes tunnel vision mm. and you're not able to take in beauty or love or connection or anything wonderful because you're in pain and life really sucks. Mm. And so for me, it's so foundational this love, going back to body sovereignty and sexual sovereignty, this, this love, this reclamation of my body space, my personal space, it is a temple. Can I be in almost a sacred relationship with myself? And what does this body temple need to thrive? Because when the body temple is thriving, when you feel good in your body, your emotions are stable. Mm. There, there's something very related to a body that's healthy and vibrant and emotional stability. And then when your emotions are pretty stable, you're very creative. You can start to, I mean, you can be unstable like some crazy artists and they create some wonderful stuff <laughs> as well. But in general, like the average person feeling stress is not a creative space. So when we're more in the feel good place, we can be more creative. We can think in, uh, outside of the box, be more innovative, be more connected, be more willing to not be selfish right? Mm -hmm. Suddenly I'm concerned about quote unquote, the environment because it feels good to, to have fresh air and clean water. It's, it's not because I'm altruistic. It's just that I actually enjoy clean air and fresh water because I'm now connected to when I breathe shitty air or drink crappy water, it feels horrible in my body. Mm -hmm. So health as wealth, I think is also related to an altruistic thing because if I'm really paying attention to my vitality, it's interconnected to everything. Yeah. And that is true wealth because now I'm, I'm giving abundantly through my presence versus taking um, people in the yeah. environment. 
Yeah. I would love to know where our listeners can follow up with you and if you have any offerings at the moment. Yeah. So um, Dare Your Desire is my website, dareyourdesire.com. And on there, there's a few offerings. We do some free uh, challenges. Well, they're very low-priced challenges. Uh, One is the Sacred Courtesan, which I think you two would love. And it's basically like a reclamation of pleasure as a deep offering, a, a spiritual offering. And then there's a body ecstatic one. If, if people really want to be more connected to loving their bodies, um, that's all on that website. And the book that you read, Desire, so desirethebook.com, it has a free book club with tons of videos, with a playbook you can download, with free meditations, all free. And that's desirethebook.club. So those are some great resources for people to start exploring. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for your time and your wisdom. Yeah. And really bringing the light on this. Yeah. It's been such a powerful chat and has really opened my mind up to so many things. And I just know that all of our fellow witches are going to really gain so much from this episode. So thank you. Oh, it's such a pleasure. And I mean, there's nothing more witchy than devoting our life to pleasure and to the body. I mean, that's very, very witchy. Um, and I think it's it's liberation, actually. Thanks so much for listening, fellow witch. We really hope that you enjoyed that episode just as much as we did. We really both took so much away from that, and I think mm. our minds were a little bit blown in a really great and really empowering way. If you loved this episode too, we would love if you could consider leaving us a rating and review on your favorite listening app. And you can join our free coven on Facebook, which is WBW Coven. And head over and find us on Instagram too, at Witches Being Witches. Bye, fellow witch. Thanks for listening to Witches Being Witches. Remember, happiness is the new rich. Inner peace is the new success. Health is the new wealth. And kindness is a new call. We'll see you next episode.